Let's take a look at it. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hear them in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, in other words, Gentile converts, Cretans and um, Arabs, we, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and yet perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said they have had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. And those who live in downtown say, well, what's, what's the point? No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy, your young men will see visions, your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Many of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, and I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my tongue rejoices. My body also will live in hope, because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with your joy and your presence. Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, 
brothers, what shall we do? And Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers, though, were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that that day would be this day. We pray, Lord Jesus, that your spirit would be poured out upon us and that indeed we might see a community that is so attractive to the world that they might not only be impressed, but they might be saved by the finished work of Jesus the Christ. I pray that you would so pour out your spirit upon downtown church that we would boldly declare your word to the lost and the broken, regardless of nationality, regardless of color of skin, regardless of um, amount in, in a checking account or a 501k, regardless if they drive a nice car or no car. Oh God, I pray that you would pour out your spirit that the world might know that you are God, that your son is king and Savior, and Lord. Father, we thank you that you are restoring all things, and you're beginning that restoration right here in this body. And so, Father, I pray that we might understand with eyes that see and ears that hear this morning, that we might be your people, that we might cry out for your Spirit, that you might get glory, and the world might change, including us. Father, we need you. And we pray that you would come. I need you this morning. Holy Spirit, would you speak through me? I pray in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. When we first moved to Colorado to start planning a church there in Fort Collins, about an hour north of Denver, uh, we did not know a soul. And so we knew that for God... Uh, to, uh, for us to see a church started there and planted there, that we would need a movement of the Spirit. Uh, we couldn't rely on old high school friends or connections, kind of that southern uh, connection, you know, but, but we had to have a, a movement of the Spirit. And one thing that I knew was that the Spirit of God moves toward the broken, that the gospel goes downhill because it's come to me. And so we began praying that God would lead us to the broken and the hurting, to the disenfranchised, to those who were out of the church. And um, in, in Fort Collins, there, there's not a lot of poverty, but, in, but Fort Collins is as broken as any community, so we knew that there was brokenness, and we found that brokenness primarily, or, or, or I guess manifested in a very uh, abundant way in uh, the homosexual community. Uh, AIDS was ravaging, HIV was ravaging that community, and there was a, uh, an HIV-AIDS um, nonprofit clinic right across from where we uh, first began worshiping. And so we befriended um, 
that nonprofit, and we asked them how we might serve them, how we might love on those that they serve. And they said, well, absolutely, uh, because a, a big need in that community, at least in Fort Collins, um, was that those with HIV were spending so much money on their medication that they didn't have the energy physically nor the resources to keep their homes up. And so they needed someone to come in and just help them, um, you know, with, with, with their houses, with their yards, with uh, whatever needs that they had. And so we said, well, we'd love to do that. And they paired us off first with um, uh, two older men. They were in their mid to late 70s um, and had been together in a relationship for 50-something years. Uh, one of them was uh, a former professor of English at the University of Colorado in Boulder. Um, and, and so they came from a very in, in, you know, intellectual community, and, and I therefore knew what they already had thought about the church. Um, and so I was a little nervous going in as an evangelical, you know, Bible-believing um, Christian. But they welcomed us in, and uh, for about a week, we just loved on them by renovating their kitchen and getting them a washer and dryer and cleaning up their yard. And, oh, that, that doesn't sound like much. Believe me, it was unbelievable. I mean, we took away at least five huge trailer loads of just, you know, bushes and, and tree limbs, and it was just in complete disarray. And at the end of the week, uh, when we were finishing up, one of the men, the man who had HIV, asked one of our volunteers if, if, if he could talk to me. And I came in and I sat down and he started just railing all evangelical Christians in Colorado and in the United States. And um, if you live in Colorado and you're, you're not a believer and you're, you're kind of throwing stones at the church, you're going to be hitting James Dobson because he was... Um, um, you know, very active then, and, and his ministry focused on the family, and so he was just railing uh, James Dobson. And I thought, oh boy, you know, I'm getting a little tense, I'm thinking, here it comes, he's about to blast me, and we've been here all week, you know, just pouring in. And he said, he said, but Richard, you guys are not like that. What you've done this week, and this is a quote, he said, what you've done this week is more powerful than a thousand sermons. And I said, sir, can I open the Bible to you? And he said, please. <laughs> and I sat there with his Bible. I guess as an English professor, he had an old Bible on the shelf. And I just walked through the Gospel of John with him. And we talked about his perception of heaven. And he came to a dinner at the end of that week at our house with all those volunteers. And, and he and his, um, his partner came to our church numerous times. They never came and, and took of the Lord's Supper. They never received Christ, at least while I was there. But I could tell that they weren't just fascinated, but they were attracted to the God that they saw in us. If we learn anything about this chapter, about the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2, and, and this whole um, event that we call Pentecost... It's the reality that the Holy Spirit was poured out upon common people that they might live uncommon lives, that the world might stand back and say, I want to know that Jesus. You see, what we have is we have some people laughing, saying those people are drunk, and we're going to get to that. That's actually a very important part of this text. 
But what we also see is that at least 3,000 people say, I want that. Tell us what to do. We want to have this Jesus. And over 3,000 people are converted this day. And we, we end this chapter, and the, the words are, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Why? Because it wasn't just the preached word. And see, from my tradition, a, a Reformed tradition, for those that may know what that means, if you don't, don't worry about it, you don't need to know. But from my church tradition, if you will, I grew up hearing that preaching was everything. And so, you know, to be a preacher in my denomination or my church, you had to go to undergraduate school and you had to go to three or four years of seminary and you had to have your degree. Because it's preaching. But I want you to know that it wasn't just Peter's sermon that was powerful that day and the reason that those people were converted. But it was preaching coupled with real, authentic community. The world felt the love of the church. There was something different about this community, something different about the church. It wasn't some seminary trained man with all of his education bringing some wonderful perspectives from on high down to the lowly people. It was a common dude like Peter who just a few days before that was scared to death to even claim the name of Jesus in front of a poor slave girl. All of a sudden he's preaching to thousands boldly saying, kill me if you want to, but I know this Jesus. And I love this Jesus because He first loved me. You see, that's what the Spirit of God does. He creates a radical community that stands at the testimony to the world and out of this radical community that is dying for one another and dying for those around, they're giving the world a taste of heaven. Now, that's exactly what's happening here. Notice that our passage begins when the day of Pentecost had arrived. Well, if you take the literal translation there of when the day of Pentecost arrived, it's when the day of Pentecost was being fulfilled. And what that tells us is that something significant was going down in the church right here. Because Pentecost, though for New Testament believers, we think it started right here. No, this was an ancient feast. It had been going on for hundreds of years. The Jews had been celebrating Pentecost. It was the Feast of the First Fruits. Now, how many people in here have a garden? Anybody got a garden in here? All right, I've got a few tomato plants. Uh, I, I saw uh, one of my great tomatoes, um, you know, had turned red. It was ripe. I was out cutting the grass, and I stopped, and I went over, and I grabbed that tomato, and what did I do? I ate it. I thought, thank you, Jesus. It's, it, it's sweet. This crop is sweeter than last year. And what did I do? Okay, man, that was awesome. Let's pull up the plants and be done. No. I mean, what I did was I ate it, I tasted it, and I said, oh, there's more to come. You see, that was Pentecost. That was the, the festival of the first fruits. They harvested. They had planted and, and they harvested the first harvest and they brought it in and they cooked it all up and they laid it down. You had the turnip greens or whatever they, you know, they had planted and they feasted and they didn't just say, okay, God, now we've got to wait till next year. They were like, this is a sign of what's to come. And so Pentecost became uh, this, this time of great celebration, but it became a time when their, their longing became even more intense because they were like, we can taste and know that God is good, but we know He's got something better coming. 
And there were all kinds of spiritual implications. They were longing for the restoration of Israel, for, for God to come down among them, for the Messiah to come, and for all things to be made new. And we see this in chapter 1. If we go back uh, to chapter 1, listen to verses 4 through 6 of Acts 1, 4 through 6. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Okay, this is a few days before the festival of Pentecost, so listen to what they said. Then they gathered around him and asked, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? See that anticipation? Do we finally get the payoff? When the final harvest comes in, when the Messiah comes and we're done with this, when you sit on your throne and there are no more bad judgments in the land and there's no more oppression and there's no more bigotry or, or, or prejudice or suffering or pain, but the King of Kings is on his throne and we get to, to live and dwell with him and reap the benefits of being his people. They were longing for that. You see, this is what we were all made for. I've told you this so many times before. It drives me crazy when I hear especially people who claim to be Christians saying that death is just the natural event of this world. Friends, there's nothing natural about death. There's something falling. or, or, or It's the essence of the curse. The reason that death is natural, if you will, in this world is because this world is cursed. And we should never be at peace with it. We should be at peace with Jesus, but we should never be at peace with death. Because death is the enemy, and it's going to end one day, someday, and God has made a world in glory in which we will never have to deal with it again. And that's why we need to get excited about the oppression and the suffering around us. And we need to carry each other's burdens. Because we are a community that if we are possessed by the Holy Spirit, we can show the world something new and different. And we can get a taste of something new and different. You see, the reason that these men in Colorado resonated with us is because we didn't bring them judgment. We brought them a taste of the new heaven and the new earth. A day when sinners will be loved. A day when the sick are tended to. The George Zimmerman verdict was read last night. Uh, he walked free, and it's hard to swallow for many, especially in this room. I thought a lot of last night and early this morning up until this time, what I needed to say about this and how in the world this fit in with what I was preaching. And I want you to know that this is, this is what I'm going to bring to us. We should expect nothing less from the world. But we should be a community that's radically different. You hear me? And you know what? We are being remade into that community right here, and I'm living proof of that. There was a day, dear friends, and I'm embarrassed to say it, but there was a day that I would have been afraid of a black man in a hoodie walking through my neighborhood. But that day is gone. You know why? 
Because black men that sometimes wear hoodies are now my brothers. They're now my fathers. They're now my children. We are bonded in Christ. And I no longer, that's not my first thought when I see a black man in a hoodie anymore. Why? Because right here we have an example of the new heaven and the new earth. Because this is it. So we don't go out and let the world be the world, but let's show them something different. Because we possess something different. Is it horrible? Yes. Is it injustice? Yes. But God said, you're going to have much injustice in this life. But not in my kingdom. So church, be the church. You want to know how to respond? Love somebody unlike you. Get in relationship with somebody unlike you. And let God deal with your prejudice and let them be history. The new community of God. Dear friends, the Holy Spirit comes down and remakes us as the church that the world might stand back and say, I might want some of that. I might want to hear about that Jesus. So the question before us this morning is, is there anything attractive about us? Because when the Holy Spirit shows up, there's a lot of things that are attractive. So let's look at it. A few things this morning. The first is this. When the Holy Spirit shows up, power and presence comes from the outside into us. The very power and presence of God comes from the outside to the inside. This is radically counter to what the world tells us is true. What does the world tells us is, tells us is true? Yeah, I think that's the way to say it. The world says this. You can do anything. Just believe in yourself. Just dig that. You can do it. You can be whatever you want to be. And that is completely counter to the gospel. Let me tell you why. Lori Gottlieb, a psychologist, wrote an article uh, back in November that really points to this. She wrote this article entitled, What Brand is Your Therapist? Um, she is a therapist and um, she has studied therapy. And she, she said this, in her study she made the conclusion that 15 years ago, people were coming to therapists saying, help me change. But today, after years of self-esteem being driven into children, now people come and say, help me deal with other people. It's not help me change, but it's help me change other people. She writes this. She said, I see fewer and fewer people today saying they want to change. What I see is people coming in saying they want someone or something else to change. So at professional events or other networking events, I have changed my pitch from I treat people with depression, anxiety to are you having trouble with difficult people in your life? Now, let me tell you why this is so bad. If your hope is that you can be whatever you want to be then if there are people in your life that are getting in the way of you being what you think you can be, then you're just going to discard them and you're going to be frustrated with them. Let me tell you, not one marriage would survive if a husband or a wife thought 24 hours a day, seven days a week, your job description is to help me be what I can be. No relationship will ever survive if the job description of your friends or your community is, it's your role to help me be what I need and I want to be. It doesn't work. It can't work. It's only going to cause uh, schism and fights and arguments. 
You see, the, the hope is not power that is within me, but it's what Paul said in Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. I can do everything because Christ will come inside of me and make me what I'm not in and of myself. That's why we need the Holy Spirit. The hope is outside of us, not in us naturally. And that is a huge difference. And we see it right here in Acts chapter 2. What kind of, what kind of um, um, change does the Spirit bring when He comes inside of us? Two things. First, we see it in verse um, 2. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. Notice that he doesn't say that a violent wind came in, but the sound like a violent wind. Have you ever heard a violent wind? You can't hear anything else. Some of you were living here when that, the straight line wind blew through Memphis and just knocked down, you know, snapped telephone poles and trees. And I mean, you couldn't hear yourself. That's what the presence of the Spirit does. The Spirit comes inside of us and it is power like the wind. It is there to, to blow in our sail when we can't go in a certain direction because we're in dead water. So it is power. And then secondly, we see they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. Tongues of fire represents the very presence of God. If you look throughout the Scriptures, you remember when God appeared to Abraham, He appeared as a smoking fire pot. Fire. When God appeared to Moses, he appeared to him in a burning bush, very presence, fire. When God appeared to Israel personally, he appeared to them in a cloud by day and fire by night. When God appeared to Ezekiel, he appeared in fire. There was fire everywhere. So what fire represents here is the very presence of God. What God is telling us is that when we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us, we have the very power of God and the very presence of God. Power represented, represented by the sound of the wind and presence represented by the fire. And who had this? Verse 4, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. Notice that the Holy Spirit is not selective. Before this time, the apostles were the ones that everybody looked to for God to do big things in and through. But what God is telling us at, at Pentecost, at this final Pentecost, if you will, is that the Holy Spirit is being poured out for the most uncommon among you, or the most common among you, excuse me, to do incredible things. The Holy Spirit doesn't just come down on a couple of people, but He came down, the text says, on all of them. So what did the Spirit do? What was the job of the Spirit? We talked about it last week. I mean, what can we expect? Are you with me? What can we expect if the Holy Spirit is really in us? We saw it last week when we looked at the baptism of Jesus. You remember what happened at the baptism of Jesus? Uh, the Spirit in the form of a dove came to rest upon Jesus. And what did the voice of God say from heaven? You are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Now, I want to tell you right now that the Spirit of God 
in the heart of Jesus the Christ did the work constantly of reminding him that though his flesh might tell him he is alone, he is not. It constantly reminded him of the words of his father. You are my son and with you I am well pleased. And that is precisely the work, the primary work of the spirit for us today. In Romans 8, we read this. You are, however, not in the realm of flesh, but you're in the realm of the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, they don't belong to Christ. Are you getting that? That if you're a Christian, the spirit of God lives in you. Let me keep going. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. And then he writes this in verse 16. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, let me tell you what that looks like. What is the practical application of this? Every time we look in the mirror, we are looking for some message that we are something better than we are. That's why we work so hard at it. (laughs) Every thought that we have is possessed and motivated by, do I measure up? And what happens when we think we don't measure up? What happens when we think that we're just kind of nothing? What happens when we think that we're just kind of looked over? We have that demeanor throughout life. But what happened to the believers when they woke up with the Holy Spirit resting in them for the first day? They thought they had this overwhelming sense that we are the people of God. That I am a child of God. I have been, I have been adopted and chosen. I've been redeemed by the blood of Christ and I'm special to Him. And what, what happened was this massive outpouring of, of, of a church of 120, 140 people that took over the world at the time. Why? Because they believed the very Word of God that they were children of God. You say, well, that's real interesting. Look at verse 13. There were many people amazed, we see in verse 12, and perplexed. But then in verse 13 we read this. Some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. And Peter starts his sermon Kind of his introduction is, no, it's not wine that has produced this effect on on the church. Now, let me play this out a little bit. I used to just think that was a funny thing to make jokes about, which I did, you know, early on, 9 o'clock in the morning, they're drunk, you know. This is hugely significant. The very first thing that the people outside of the church um, saw was something like a, 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 a drunkenness that came upon the people. What in the world is that? If you go to some traditions, like the Reformed tradition, they just 
try to do away with that altogether and say that's just emotionalism and that's not real, really not the effect of the Spirit on, on the life. If you go in another direction, they're like, yeah, I mean, if you're possessed by the Spirit, it looks like this, dancing in the aisles or doing things physically that you could never do. or You know, you kind of have these two extremes. But, but let me tell you what, what this text is really saying. Uh, Paul shows us in Galatians, because he comes to the church in Galatia, and he is re-emphasizing the gospel that he preached to them because they, they kind of sank into believing that God accepted us based on the, the work of Christ and the religious work of being circumcised. And so to really be acceptable to God, then you needed not only to accept Jesus and to receive him into your life and to profess him and confess him as Lord of your life, but you also needed to be religious. And we hear that all the time, and we believe that on our own flesh, that if God's really going to accept you, then you better read your Bible at least once a day, if not a couple times a day. You better not speed. You better not go to bars. You better not... All these external things, okay? But... In, in the book of Galatians, Paul, in chapter 4 and verse 15, he asked this question. He said, believers, what has happened to all your joy? And what he's saying there is, you're not acting drunk anymore. The very evidence that there's no joy in your life is evidence that you have forgotten the very gospel of Jesus and that you are walking in your flesh and not by your spirit. So what in the world does that mean? Well, let's look at what it means to get drunk. To get drunk is, alcohol is a depressant. You say, well, people don't act depressed, that I see at least, or when I drink, I'm not not acting depressed. No, it's a depressant in the sense that it, it, it separates or it kind of removes one part of your thinking. In other words, you get stupid when you get drunk. That's called drinking your problems away. I mean, you can have the worst day ever. You take a couple of drinks, and man, it just doesn't matter anymore, you know. Why? Because you're, you're smarter? No, you're stupider, okay? It's because you're more ignorant of reality. But Christian drunk is totally different. What is happening in, in the early church is when the Holy Spirit descended on the people, they began to believe what was true. You see, the reason that, that we get drunk this side of heaven with alcohol is because we want to forget what ails us so we can feel better. But Christian drunk is, is the work of the Spirit to remind us of the truths of what God has said and what He has done through the person of Jesus Christ. And so getting drunk on the Spirit, and many of us do this, and not all of us, at some point in worship, if we're believers, and you don't have to run up and down aisles, you don't have... It's just simply this reality where the Spirit comes, and the work that He does is He takes the the gospel that says, God God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever should believe in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. It takes the Word of God and it comes down and it says, Richard, God so loved you that He gave His only Son for you. If you were the only person fallen on this, on this planet, He would have sent His Son for you. Because He doesn't just love the world, He loves those in the world. And He loves you, Richard Reeves. And you know you, brother. And you know you don't deserve it. 
You know what you do and don't do. You know what you think and don't think. You know what your life is about so much of the time. And God said, I know too, better than you do, and I still choose you, and I give my son because I want to possess you as my son. I want you to be mine. And dear friends, when that reality of your sin and the reality of God's love comes crashing into your life, then you experience a drunkenness that is built into greater knowledge and understanding of what Christ has done for you. Do you get that? Have you ever experienced that? You say, I need to get drunk more. Exactly. That's the whole point. Paul in Ephesians 5, or or maybe it's 4. I think it's Ephesians 5. He says, don't get drunk on wine. That just leads to debauchery. But get filled with the Spirit. What is he saying? Get drunk on the Spirit. Don't lose your mind. Use your mind. Get deep into the Word and say, Spirit of God, meet me here and make me so alive and joy-filled that it doesn't matter. I don't need you to give me this job. I don't need you to bring healing to my body. I don't need you to do anything but be who and what you are because you have redeemed me and that's all you need to do. Do you see? That's what it is, getting drunk on the, on the, the Word of God through the Spirit of God. Now, has anybody gotten drunk this morning? I mean, isn't that beautiful? We don't need words on a screen. You know, we don't need hymnals. We don't need, all we need is the Spirit of God. It's a beautiful thing. The Spirit takes what's outside and brings it in and makes us drunk. And then we'll wrap it up with this. What happens when the Spirit of God shows up? Common people, even failures, are empowered for fruitful gospel ministry. Unbelievable. I alluded to it earlier, but Peter preaches this sermon. Now, if you go back to John and you are reminded about who Peter is, he's that guy that said he would do anything for Jesus, he would fight for him, he would would die with Jesus. And what does he do? They arrest Jesus, and he's by the fire, and um, some slave girl is sitting there, and she said, hey, aren't you one of his disciples? And what does he do? No, I don't know that guy. Not once, but three times. What has happened to Peter? He must have gone to seminary. He must have done downline. He must... No. The Holy Spirit came crashing into his heart and he got drunk on the Spirit. He began to believe what Christ had been telling him. And it all made sense. And he says, man, if this stuff is true, then I want to let other people know and I'm willing to die for it. And so he starts preaching this message and he has this boldness. He looks at at the men that he's always feared, the chief priests and the elders, and he says, you guys killed Jesus. But he has come and he's the savior of the world. And the people around are watching Peter going, man, what got into that guy? They said, there must be something to this message. And if you go on, Peter goes out with John and they are arrested. And guess what, what happens? I mean, they're still preaching. The chief priests and elders tell him to stop. And he says, no, am I to listen to you or am I to listen to God? He has this holy boldness. 
And we see that all the apostles, all of them who had run from Jesus, betrayed Jesus, let him go to the cross alone, every single one of them, history tells us, died a martyr's death, preaching the gospel and fleshing out the gospel. You see it in Stephen in Acts chapter 7. You see it over and over and over again. Common people who we never would have known in history die. Why? Because the Spirit of God came upon these common men and these common women and these common children, and they did uncommon things. And dear friends, that's what the Spirit of God has come to the church for. And it's not to show off necessarily in, in, you know, in, in, in extraordinary healings, but it's just in an ordinary person, people that know you, looking at your life and saying, what's different about you? There's a joy there. You're believing something. Something's going on in your life. And so the question is, is anything going on in your life? Does Jesus mean anything to you? And dear friends, if He doesn't, then cry out for the Spirit of God. Because that's the work of the Spirit. To take what is true and to convince you that it's true. That you might go tell the world that it's true. That you might be God's witnesses right here in downtown and beyond. As we saw last week, the only way to get the Spirit is to be desperate. Would you get desperate for the Spirit and call out for Him that He might work in your life? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank You that You're a God that comes to us. You don't stand far off and just give us laws to abide by so in hopes that somehow we'll get Your attention. But You're a God that comes inside of us by the very person of Your Spirit, to give us new life. And so, Father, I pray that new life would be manifested among us this morning and inside of us. That You would do abundantly beyond what we ask or can even imagine. Father, make us hungry for Your Spirit, and therefore hungry for Jesus. And we just pray this in His name. Amen.